Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. I, I'm reminded of the story of Ezekiel, Lord, who was brought the scroll and told to eat it, and it tasted good to him. It was the word of God. And Lord Jesus, you said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we just recognize as we come before you this morning uh, to study your word, to be taught your word, that it's food for us. It's, it's spiritual food to nourish our souls. And uh, God, we, how we need it. We need your word. And so, Lord, would you speak to us? I pray, Lord, for just a wisdom, uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, God, that that we might know you better today as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Right on. So we're going to wrap up 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, the theme, like we've been talking about going through the book of Timothy, is this, is that the gospel leads to practical, uh, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. True gospel leads to godliness. I was actually just looking back this week as I uh, was looking at, some of the different messages and where I've been teaching and I called this one the treasure of godliness and and in the different titles I was kind of shocked at how that title godliness kept slipping in um, to this study through Timothy and you know that really is the point of this little book here that that true gospel leads to godliness in our lives our our lifestyle has to be shaped by that message of Jesus and so uh, you know, as much as Timothy seems like it's a lot about organization and the structure of the church and leaders and this and that, uh, the real heart of it is, is that the power of the gospel is transformational. It, it will change your life. And, it, and, and so Timothy is getting some instruction here on what that should look like. And so, you know, uh, here particularly in this chapter, Paul is going to touch on uh, this conversation with Timothy, how the gospel should transform your work, how the gospel should transform your finances, how the gospel should transform uh, your intellect. And, you know, last week um, was kind of an interesting text. Uh, I know we had a lot of, I heard all the different groups at Koinonia had good discussion about it, but for me, it was a hard one to teach. It's just really practical stuff. You know, Paul talked about dealing with various groups. He talked about Widows. He talked about young widows and old widows and, and uh, being a single and uh, talked about, you know, just how the gospel uh, should transform different people in the church, how, how we should, you know, look after elders, train elders, discipline elders, pay elders, all these different things. And now as he's closing off this chapter, he's going to give similar instructions, but this time as he talks about work, and finances and the intellect, he's going to talk about slaves, false teachers, pastors, and being a man of God. And so first the slaves, look at verse one with me. He says this, let all who are under the yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve and all the better since those who benefit by their, goods, by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy. It's first century. The Roman Empire is near its height here. And history actually tells us that about half of the people that lived within the Roman Empire were slaves. And so this is a real practical message to a first century church. 
Um, you know, Dr. Luke, who the physician who wrote the book of Acts, he was a slave. At least that's what many believe. And you say, what? Seriously? Luke, he was a physician. He's a, a, a slave. Well, commonly slave owners would, would purchase their own physician or within the household of their slaves, they would have one of their slave, uh, slaves trained to be their own personal uh, physician. And so slavery was just you know, that's just one example really inbred in the culture of the Roman Empire. And so it's easy and understandable to see why Paul would appeal to, to slaves because the, as he taught here, because the gospel was appealing to slaves. So they understood what it was to be in, in bondage to another person. And so they, they understood the gospel message where Jesus came to set you free from slavery to sin and to death. And from death. And so, you know, oppressed slaves understood that message. And many of them followed uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendered their lives to him. And so, many slaves made up the early church. Now, for us, you know, 2,000 years later, it, in Canada at least, it's hard to get our heads around the issue of slavery. It's still, still a big issue in our world. You know, I just go back in my mind to September when... Um, we had Paul Willoughby here who's working with the Dalit Freedom Network, network and he told us about uh, the, the caste system in India and the 300 million Dalits who are essentially a slave caste within their culture. Slavery is still a major issue in, in our world, but for, for us, you know, I guess the similar situation in terms of an application is work. Sometimes work feels like slavery. And so how does the gospel, how does the teaching of Jesus enter into the workplace for us and transform us as workers for the Lord? How does the gospel change my relationship to my boss? Or, you know, does my freedom in Christ set me free in terms of the workplace in some sort of way? Does, does freedom in Christ excuse, you know, disobedience to an employer? See, the, the gospel brought a, a paradigm shift for slaves in that culture. It, it leveled the playing field, so to say, and we know the cross for us also levels the playing field. Before Jesus, no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female, all are justified freely by grace and are warmly received into the body of Christ, into the church, God's family. But outside of the church, just become, because we serve Jesus and just because we come to faith in Jesus doesn't mean that in society or in work functionally that, that uh, things are, our situation has really changed. Still a member of society, still got to work and earn a living. And for lots, um, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, I would say this, the world is looking for reasons not to believe in God. They're, they're not looking for reasons to believe in God. Often they're looking for excuses not to believe in God. And so I would say Paul talks to slaves and talks to us as workers that we might not be one of those reasons for people not to believe in God. He says, you know, when a, when a Christian is in the workplace, we, we don't want to bring disgrace to the gospel. We don't want to bring disgrace to the Lord Jesus. Um, we are called in Colossians to work for the Lord. Work as if we're working for the Lord and not for men. You know, I was thinking about some friends that Lisa and I have. They're constantly doing renovations and working all the time. And 
over the years as we've known them, we've, we've watched them use different contractors and they say, wow, one of the things is just finding a good worker. Finding someone who will show up on time and give us a full day's work and where we don't have to hang around the house and give constant supervision and where the work happens on time and on schedule. And I, I think that's exactly what we're not supposed to be as Christians. We should fulfill all of those things in the workplace. Be a witness for Jesus by being the best worker or whatever it is, the best student, the best athlete working for the glory of God. And he says specifically, when your employer is a Christian, don't take advantage of them. With attitudes, you know, whatever. Sorry, I'm late for work. You know, my quiet time was awesome this morning. You know, sorry, I'm time. I'm late for work. I was just, I was just meditating and in the presence of God and figured you would. No, no. He's like, come on, don't, don't use spiritual excuses to slack off just because your employer is a Christian. Show respect for those whom God has placed above you in the workplace. And specifically, if they're, if they're a Christian, then guard your heart by showing even more respect. I think uh, years ago, I, I worked uh, with a renovations crew. We were fresh out of Bible school. I was working part-time at a church in Surrey. And uh, I worked for a guy in our church with Genesis Creations and Renovations. And we didn't store floors and windows and this and that. And we had a great crew, all Christian guys. And it was so fun to work for my employer. And, and he was doing really well. And he was a faithful guy. And as time went on, you know, I would pack my lunch to work and bring lunch every day. And he'd always buy lunch. And then he'd start buying for different guys on the crew. And soon after a number of months, I just quit bringing lunch to work because the deal was he always bought lunch. He just always did. And so our crew got into this habit of just bringing lunch. And then finally he said, man, I got I to gotta, I gotta stop it, guys. Sorry, my wife's cracking down on me. I'm spending too much money. And, you know, it was just, it was just this interesting thing where I think back and go, wow, you know, I had good intentions, but we, we slipped into a pattern where he began to be obligated to do that for us. He was a good guy, faithful man. And I would say, you know, Paul, Paul says here, when you, when you got a Christian boss, you make sure that you, you treat them even better. You know, love does not look for opportunities to rebel. Love does not look for opportunities to shirk responsibility. Be a good worker. Be a good worker. He says this in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with, sound, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who, who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. He's talking about false teachers here and he points out something about the characteristic of, a, of false teachers and their style. Uh, they teach that godliness is a means to financial gain. But Paul says this, that's the fruit of their own imagination. That's not the teaching of the word of God. That is the teaching of a fruit of an unhealthy imagination to take faith and to link it to financial gain. Uh, there's plenty of that in our culture, isn't there? I mean, just flick on the TV. 
And Paul says, uh-uh, no way. And they're thinking, you know, they, they think that if you learn how to work the faith, it will add up to financial gain. You know, don't worry about work. Just have faith. If you do faith right, God will bless you. But God's word teaches us that we must learn to be faithful at work. That's what Paul says. Not learn to work the faith for financial gain, but be faithful at work so that you can earn a living. Faith teaches us to work and to work hard. Uh, You know, um, of course, if you look at your Bible there, just above verse 3 there, it says, it's the little subtitle, false teachers and true contentment. False teachers and true contentment. So this, this helps us identify uh, false teachers. False teachers will promote godliness as a means to financial gain. And they'll really, it's because their emphasis is on financial gain over godliness. And what Paul's saying here is this. Teaching God's people to work is a godly thing. You know, in regards to testing false teachers, Isaiah said this in Isaiah Chapter 8, verse 20, always the first test of a teacher. To the law and the testimony. To the law and the testimony. If they speak according to God's word, if they do not speak according to God's word, Isaiah said, it's because there is no light in them. But a second mark of the false teacher is this, their own attitude, their their attitude of their heart and what they expose. See, a false teacher's attitude, instead of humility, you will find pride. They'll they'll brag about visions that they've had. They brag about spiritual things. But then, you know, when you you look at the fruit of their life, you'll discover, well, there's nothing really here that they should be proud of. All these words, but when you search for fruit, is the fruit there? You know, the old saying goes, the proof is in the pudding. And they know nothing. And so he just points us to some, some things about false teachers. You know, Warren Wearsby said this. He said, a a believer that understands the word will have a burning heart, not a big head. And this conceited attitude of the false teachers leads leads to them to quarrel about words, leads to them to quarrel about things that don't matter, uh, issues that take the focus off of Christ and put the focus on man, particularly on themselves and on their visions and on their revelations. And with their puffed up minds in regards to the things that they have supposedly seen in their visions. And as a result, you know, God's people aren't strengthened. They're not encouraged in the faith. But rather this teaching breeds friction between the people of God. God's people robbed of truth and robbed of of grace. And so what does Paul say? He says this in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Really? I thought owning stuff, Paul, would make me content, you know? Because that's the cycle I live in. I don't know about you guys. It's like uh, in my obsessive-compulsive nature, just move from this to this. I need that tool. I need this sports equipment. I need this vehicle. I need this, I need this clothes. I need these shoes. It just move and move and move and move from thing to thing to thing. New MacBook, new this, iPhone. I'll just upgrade to the latest version, whatever. You know, it's like... I could spend my whole life chasing my tail. You ever seen a dog do that? You have a dog that does that? Chase its tail? It's very entertaining to watch this foolish animal chase something that it can never catch. Spinning in circles, biting, growling, doing the whole thing. 
The funny thing is the dog actually thinks that it's going to get catch his tail, right? I mean, and the only time they seem to stop is in dizziness. And sometimes our life can be just like that, chasing the tail, chasing the tail until we're dizzy and spun around and finally uh, we stop our, our pursuit to catch our breath, you know, to get a break from the dizziness. What does Paul say about contentment here? He says this, does he, or he doesn't say this, godliness will bring financial gain and that will make you content. He says great gain is godliness with contentment. See, this is about something that's in your heart, not about what's in your hand. Godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand will make you content. And I mean, as, as we all know, when we depend on, on material things for our peace, when we depend on material things for our, our assurance, you're never satisfied. You never find true contentment. You know, it's, I'm a guy, man. We like vehicles, you know. My little car that was so nice and new in 2007 is seven years old now. Having to fix it. Things go on. And, and so, look at, he says, it's what's in your heart that will make you content, not what's in your hand. You know who goes and sees psychiatrists? Rich people. Because that's who can afford them. <laughs> but godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world. And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Like you got a shirt on your back, got food to eat, with scones, bacon, and eggs this morning. Be content. God knows your needs. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know that about God? God knows your needs. And you know when you pass on and upgrade from this old tent and Move on to your mansion. You know what you're going to leave behind? Everything. 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 He says in verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's talking here about dangerous desires. He says here that the desires for wealth leads to sin. Riches are a trap. Rather than uh, leading us to freedom, they lead us to bondage. And so in a few minutes, he's going to talk about how to handle riches. But instead, you know, uh, of them bringing us satisfaction, they can lead to other senseless, harmless desires. You say, really? Yeah, i give you two examples. Tiger Woods, Justin Bieber. <laughs> they got it all, right? Nobody could say no to them, nothing, this, not, no way. You know, somebody was telling me the other day about Justin Bieber getting pulled over because he rented a Lamborghini somewhere in Florida and the whole story. I'm thinking, man, who would rent a... <laughs> must have been a serious insurance policy on that Lamborghini. You know, Harper and Obama made a, a bet on Friday's Canada versus USA game. You hear about the losing nation? They get Justin Bieber. <laughs> and after the wheat win today, it's Swedish meatballs for everybody. Okay, look at it. He says, riches create lusts that have to be satisfied and they can lead you to ruin and they can lead you to destruction. And so, the first thing is, he, as he was telling us here, we, we need to have godliness in the heart 
And, and that will lead to contentment. And, and we don't take our faith and turn it into something that's a tool to acquire riches. And the word here, to, when he talks about contentment is uh, artikia. And it means this, complete self-sufficiency. It means this frame of mind, which is completely independent of all outward things and which carried the secret of happiness within itself. See, we know, we know because we live it in our culture. Contentment does not come from external things. And so contentment for us as Christians, contentment is something that you have to cultivate. It's hard. You know, you have to create this inner you know, sufficiency found in godliness that, that in spite of the circumstance, in spite of the situation, rests in Christ. Rests in who God is. You know, Paul said this in Philippians chapter four. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, there was a newspaper that once ran a competition for the best definition of money. And the winning entry was this. Money is an article that may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And a universal provider of everything but happiness. See, babies, they're born penniless. You, you came into this world with your birthday suit, and that's it. And you're going to leave this world in that same way. You know, I watched that today, those uh, hockey players, and I was thinking about it, placing, I mean, the, the pinnacle of hockey, I mean, besides the Stanley Cup, I, I mean, right there, okay? Uh, right there. Hanging the gold around their neck. And I thought, man, there it is, the height. And it's pavement in heaven. Nothing but asphalt in, returns to, in, in regards to the economy of God's kingdom. All the glory that this world could give them awarded to those men right there. Wonder if they're still content a few hours later. In heaven, the streets will be paved with gold. And so, you know, when we think about what we came into this world with and what we'll leave with, we're going to leave everything behind. You know, Jesus once told a, a parable. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a tricky one. When you read it, it's in Luke chapter 16. He talks about a dishonest manager. You know, a guy who was working for his, his, his boss, his, and he was, he was called to account for some mismanagement of some of, some of his employer's finances. And so he knew that it was coming. It was coming down the pipe for him. He was going to get it. And so knowing that he would be fired, he began to go around and settle the accounts with all of the, the people that were in debt to the master. And what he did was he worked favorably for the debtors. He, he took their, oh, you owe a hundred bucks, make it 25. Just let's settle it right now. He went around and he did that for everyone. And, and you know, it, it appears as you read that story that he rips off the master. And so you think, man, what, why would the master commend him for being wise and shrewd? But see, the master actually complimented him, I presume before he fired him, for, for two reasons. Because the first one, this. 
That man knew that he would be called account to account for how he managed things. And my friends, you and I will be called to account for how we manage things before the Lord. We should take that very seriously. But the second thing that man did is he, he took advantage of his present situation to create for himself a comfortable future situation, right? He, he went and he made friends with everybody who was in debt to that master. And when he got fired, I'm sure he found himself a job pretty darn quick. And you know, for us, Paul's going to talk about this. We should use our resources right now for an eternal good. We should, you know, send them on ahead of us for something that will last for eternity in the kingdom of God. And so Paul, he's not, he's not done with the subject of wealth and riches. Uh, he's going to move on here in a minute, but I, I would say this, you know, money's not inherently evil. It says here for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evils. M- money is amoral. We need money. You got to live. You got to have a house. You got to clothe yourself. You got to put food on the table. What Paul is talking about here is the proper use of it and the, par- the proper attitude that a Christian should handle it with. And so, you know, does that mean a, a, a Christian should not be wealthy? Well, I don't think so because he's about to say this. He's about to give instructions to the rich. The pitfall is, is if you love the money. See, money's a great servant and it's a terrible master. And so before he talks about the use of wealth, what Paul's going to do here is he's, he's going to talk to Timothy about what the godly man should pursue. All right? What should be the pursuit of the godly man? Look at verse 11. He says this. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Do you know that in the Bible, not many men are called by that title, man of God. I mean, all of us, we want to be men, us guys, we want to be men of God. Ladies want to, want to be women of God. That is not a title that the Bible hands out very freely. I actually looked it up. 73 times in the scriptures that title's used, man of God. Here's the thing that's interesting. 71 times are in the Old Testament. You know, Moses, unnamed prophets, Samuel, Elijah, you know the guys, Elisha, David, Elisha, Elijah, I mean, these different guys. In the New Testament, it's only used twice and both times, Timothy, man of God, man of God. And so Paul gives some instructions to Timothy that will preserve him as a man of God. That they will give longevity to his life in Christ. That will give him uh, success in his ministry. And preserve this status of a man of God. First one is this. He says this. Flee. Timothy, there's some things you're going to have to flee. You know, we don't always think of fleeing in a, in, in a good picture. To me, you know, f- fleeing seems to have this idea of being afraid or something. You know, it's a mark of cowardice. You know, Nehemiah, when he was threatened in, in Nehemiah chapter 6, he said this, will a man, of, a man like me flee when people threaten? When I'm doing the work of God, I'm not going to flee. That would have been a mark of cowardice in his life as he faced opposition against the work of God. But there are other times in the scriptures when fleeing is both 
uh, a mark of wisdom and a mark of victory. I think of Joseph when Potiphar's wife was seeking to seduce him and lead him into sexual sin. He fled. He fled her presence. Or David, when King Saul was after him and seeking to kill him and to take his life, he fled. And, and Paul says, Timothy, there's some things you need to flee in your life. Separate yourself from the sins of the false teacher. Take a stand against those godly teachings. Don't, don't think that you can use faith to be a means towards financial gain. Separate yourself from those practices. Flee that stuff, Timothy. Flee those values of your culture. And then secondly, flee, flee those, but pursue this, he says. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You know, um, when you separate certain things out of your life, what you need is to add positive things that you can then pursue. And that's what Timothy's, yeah, Timothy, take these away, but now add these and go in this direction. They say separation without positive growth will lead you to isolation. And you know, I, I think about the church, you know, often we're known for the things that we oppose. I, I don't want to be known for the things that I oppose. We want to be known for the things that we pursue. We want to be known for the, the positive things that we have, are seeking as we leave behind certain things. What was Timothy called to pursue? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. It says in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you, ma you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Flee these things, pursue these things, fight, Timothy. That's the third instruction. You're going to have to fight for some things. Fight the good fight of the faith. The expression is keep on fighting. That's what the verb is expressing. Agonize, strain, Go for the best. Battle so as to win the prize. Look, Paul said this about himself in his second letter to Timothy. He said, I have fought the good fight. I fought it. Not, not between people, not between believers. This is a fight against our enemy. It's a fight against Satan. It's a fight against sin. It's a fight to defend the faith. It's a fight to defend the truth that's been entrusted to the church. You know, when Nehemiah was, when they came after him and they threatened his life, he, he put a sword in every man's hand in the right hand and he put a trowel in the other one. He said, we're going to do the work and we'll be ready to fight. We want to have a fight. Fight, Timothy. Flee, pursue, fight, and fourthly, take hold. Take hold of eternal life. You know, this life that we're living, is a, it's a spiritual battle. And when you're in the battle of life and trying to live for Jesus Christ, what encourages you, I might ask? What encourages the man of God? To Timothy, it was this. He was told, keep eternity in view. Keep the values of eternity in your view. Again, you know, gold, a metal hanging around your neck, pavement, 
in heaven. Man of God, live with the values of eternity. Lay hold of eternal life. Keep focused on the fact that you are going to heaven. Keep focused on the fact that this life is passing away. That there, that there will be a putting off of this old tent. Lay hold of eternal life to which you have been called. You've been called there by God. You have faith in God. Your, your assurance in victory, Timothy, is sure. You, you made a public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ, Timothy, and you stand with others. Now take hold of the promise of eternal life and, and hold on to that one when discouragement comes. He says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession. What else encourages the man of God or the person trying to be the man or woman of God? Keeping eternity in view, but also looking to Jesus. Always looking to Christ. He's our example. Pilate Pilate said to Jesus, you know the story, oh, so you're king. And Jesus said to him, you said that I am. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then he said to Pilate, he said, everyone who hears my voice, hears the voice of truth. The funny thing is, is when you read that story, Pilate said, truth, what's truth? And then he walked out in front of the crowd and he said, I find no fault in this man. Uh, he actually confessed there was no fault in Jesus right after he said, what is truth? He, c- he couldn't discern it spiritually. And Jesus made a good confession in front of Pilate. He didn't back down in the face of the opposition. He didn't back down uh, before the enemy. He knew his father in heaven was watching. He knew his father in heaven would raise him from the dead. It, see, God gives life. Don't fear. Do not be afraid. Remember Jesus, Paul is saying. Remember his witness and his example and make a good confession and take heart. He actually says, I I charge you in the presence of God. This is the command, Timothy. This is the order from the superior officer to the junior officer, from the commander in chief. This is the assignment, Timothy, that you're going to report on. Look at verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor an eternal dominion. Amen. He's saying this in light of who God is in light of where we're going, which is heaven. Keep the right view of yourself. You know, don't let your mind inflate itself about who you are. God, he says here dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen. You know, I just think about it. Have you tried, just tried to stare at the sun. You can't do it. It's brutal. It's like your eyeballs are going to burn out of, out of your head. You know, you, you can't 
set your gaze on the sun. And it's like a small part of creation in the midst of this massive universe in which we live. And yet it's light and it's exceeding heat and power is enough that I can't look at it. But God is engulfed in such light that no one has ever or can see him. He, he, he lives in unapproachable light. Isn't that an amazing picture of God? But the beauty of it is this. We don't have to fear death because God who is immortal shared our humanity and he gave his life on a cross and he purchased us with his blood so that we could share in his immortality. And the Bible says one day we will see him face to face through the righteousness of Christ. And so some instructions to Timothy, flee, pursue, fight, take hold. And then the conversation comes back around money. Let's talk about money again. But rather this time, instead of, you know, handling money with ungodly pursuits and focuses to fulfill our own desires, let's talk about riches and money as a tool. And so he says this in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, like I was telling you before, I, I, I'm sure a lot of you share with this, but you know, I can be a little obsessive compulsive in my purchasing, in the handling of my money. You know, I get focused on something and then I make a plan and I scheme and I scheme and I work to justify my pursuit of that thing. And I guess the question about money and possessions is this. Who owns who? Who serves who? Who works for who? You know, I like to work around the house and work in my yard. That's not inherently bad. But is that house serving me or am I serving it? Is that yard serving me or am I serving it? Is that car serving me or am I serving it? Is that bank account serving me or am I serving it? Money and possessions should serve me for the glory of God, not the other way around. See, God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. You know, I think about the Sunshine Coast. We get, like, I mean, we like to brag. We, we live in the best place on earth. And in so many ways, it's true. I mean, look at the beauty, the snow coming down. You can look, look. I'm going to tell you something beautiful about that. You don't, have, you don't need money to enjoy that. You don't need money to enjoy that ocean. You don't need money to hold the hand of your spouse and walk on the beach. You, you don't need you know, money to swim in the water here or to walk in the forest and wander up Elphinstone and look at the majesty of God's creation. See, God has provided us with everything to enjoy. And so, you know, I would say the best things are free. The ones God gives. And so the rich shouldn't be haughty, he says, but humble. We're not owners, we're stewards. And so if God has made us rich, then we must always remember that it's God who made us rich. Not these two hands. God gave me these two hands 
and he blessed them so that I could work and provide. But it's God where the gifts came from. And so, you know, riches, and it's, I think it's important for us to hear this, especially in our culture. You know, riches um, are not special status in the kingdom of God. You know, the haves and the have-nots. Riches are not special status in the kingdom of God. You don't want to, I guess share pet peeve. You know, one thing I hate is those bumper stickers, we are the 99. It says, oh, there's 1% that has everything and we're the, and I think, yeah, okay, we're the 99, but we're like the top one or 2% of the 99. So what are you complaining about? Are you kidding me? You know, we were at the Toby Mac concert on, on Friday night and had a great time. A, a whack load of us from the church were there. And, and at one point, they got up and they just shared about sponsoring a kid and doing the appeal. And it, it was the typical thing. You know the deal. But he talked about some of the stats and they freshly just blew me away. And the reality is, is we might say that we're the ni- in the 99, but we actually live amongst the top 1% in the entire world. Our standard of living is so good in Canada. We're so blessed. So, so blessed. As he said on, on, on Friday night, we live at the front of the line. And so we have to have a proper perspective as believers in North America seeking to serve Jesus Christ. See, you can be rich in this life and not rich in the life to come. That's what Paul's about to talk about here. You know, you can... You can uh, have riches in this life and you can also send them ahead and be rich in the life to come. Rich in this life and not rich in the life to come or rich in this life and rich in the life to come. I, I, I prefer that second option. And so we don't set our hope on riches because riches are uncertain. But Jesus is, Jesus is certain. The values of his kingdom are, are certain. We trust Jesus, not our wealth, not our bank accounts. And so look at with wealth and the kingdom of God, it should be an open hand, people of God. An open hand. God, you gave the gifts. Now the hand's open. You lead. You direct. You know, you, you guide us. And when your confidence and when my confidence is in my wealth or it's in my possessions, and those things are our securities, then it exposes that spiritually there are insecurities. We are not trusting Jesus. When your security is in your bank account, you are not fully trusting Jesus. Trust him. Open hand. He says about the rich in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, you can't, you can't take it with you, but you can't send it on ahead. You know, tithe it, give it, share it. Use your wealth to do good for other people. You know, make an investment in your future with the hope and prayer that, that God will bless it. You know, make an investment in a, in a person with the hope and prayer that God will do a spiritual work in their life. I, I love the sort of financial play on words in the next verse, uh, the, next, the next sentence actually. Look at verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Look at, somebody made a deposit in this young guy's life. 
And we know who it was. It was Paul. It was Luke. It was who else? Whoever else was with them. His grandmother, his mother. They invested into that kid. They invested into his life. They supported him, I imagine. Whatever it was, they invested in him. And it was to pay dividends to them in the life to come. And Paul says, Timothy, you need to guard it. You need to take care of that investment that's been entrusted to you. Guard it. How, did he, how was he to guard it? How could Timothy guard that which he had been given and that which had been entrusted to him and the way people had invested in his life? I would say this. By declaring the word of God as a man of God should. By declaring the truth of Jesus as a man of God should. Living for and testing everything by the word of God. Never forgetting that God's word is the authority. I stumbled as I was reading a a story of, of Spurgeon. And it said that. It said about Spurgeon that he scorned the idea that the Bible should have to be defended. Comparing the idea, he compared the idea to trying to defend a caged lion. You know, groups of men come, a group of men actually came to him and they attacked the authority of scripture and, and, he, and asked him about the attacking of, of people attacking the authority of scripture. And this is what he said. Many suggestions are made and much advice is offered. This weapon is recommended and another one pardoned. Pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He'll take care of himself. Why? They're gone. He no sooner goes forth in his strength than, he is, than his assailants flee. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible itself. Timothy, man of God, proclaim the word of God. Teach the word of God. Guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. He goes on in verse 20, he says, Avoid the irreverent, irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. God committed truth. I mean, get the picture here. God committed truth to Paul. Paul committed truth to Timothy. And as we're going to see when we get to 2 Timothy in in the first chapter, actually, that Paul is going to give instruction to Timothy about committing truth to the next generation. Uh, He's going to give him instruction about how to pass it on and and to who to pass it on to. And see, I would say this, that's the pattern for both the spreading and the propagating of, of the gospel and the protection of truth and the sharing of God's word from one person to another. You know, in our culture, we love big event stuff, the Billy Graham stuff, and they're good. They're effective. It's good. But I'm convinced that the best is always one-on-one. One person, neighbor to neighbor, family member to family member, friend to friend, share the truth, share Jesus, pass it on. It's the most effective means. See, not only are we stewards of, the, of our money, We handle it wisely for the kingdom of God. We're also stewards of the word of God, the church, the pillar and buttress of truth. Called to protect and preserve the integrity and to proclaim 
the truth of the Lord Jesus, sharing good news. Pass it on, Timothy. And so as Paul wraps up here, he just gives Timothy one last warning about one more pitfall. Not riches. He talked about how riches can lead you to wander from the faith. But in his last couple of verses here, he, he gives another warning about something else that can cause you to swerve from all that God has entrusted to you. He calls it irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some has swerved, some have swerved from the faith. Again, look, the gospel has to transform your thinking. The gospel has to transform your intellect. It's got to affect the way that you perceive the world, a biblical worldview. And there are always those around who claim to have special spiritual knowledge or whatever they want to call it. Visions, revelations, experiences, whatever it is. And they may claim to know a great deal. And they might babble on. They might have, you know, this godless mixture of contradictory notions and ideas. He calls it irreverent babble and contradictions. And the warning is that stuff can work your way, its way into your heart and life. And before you know it, you'll be wandering from the truth. And so when the gospel touches your intellect, you begin to leave that stuff. Contradictions, phooey. Babble, phooey. Give me the word of God. Give me the word of God. See, the man of God must be a man of the word. The woman of God must be a woman of the word. In the first century church, some, something rose up and it's, it's really prevalent in, in our culture. We don't call it by this, but it's Gnosticism. This, this idea that there's special knowledge and there's special secrets and it's released and let go. And they say, oh, I had this vision. I had this revelation. And Paul says, no, word of God. It's not secrets. It's an open book. No tricks, no secret codes, no padlocks. Just Jesus and what he's given us. I love Paul's final sentence, not just for Timothy, but for you as well this morning. Grace be with you. The unmerited favor of God on your life.